Oh my, trouble in the church. There's conflict. It didn't just happen in James' day, but it happens today as well. Now, I know some of us would look at that and say, man, I am so happy that's not Mission View Church. Well, let me tell you, we, have, we don't have that scenario, but over the last 30 years, I've seen some doozies within the church, and probably you could tell a few stories as well. Now, I'm going to keep this in a hypothetical situation. I'm going to give you kind of a, for instance, that I've experienced over the years. I'm not thinking of one person, but this kind of thing happens. So you have couple A. Couple A confide in couple B. Now, there's the thing that they confided in is actually something that's sinful that's going on. Maybe there's an affair going on. Maybe there's something happening, addiction to something, and they're just not willing to deal with it. Well, couple B really loves this couple, and they say, hey, you got to deal with this issue. This isn't right. You're sinning against God. You're part of the body of Christ. You need to deal with this. Maybe go to church leadership, ask for some help. But couple A refuses to do anything. They just want status quo. They just wanted somebody to listen to them. So couple B, in deep convictions, goes to leadership and say, you know what, I'm concerned about this in love. I haven't told anybody else. I've just come to you. And so the leadership and couple B go to couple A. And so they go to couple A and they talk about this. And then couple A, guess what they do? They get mad. They get mad at the pastor and couple B. Why? Because they were insensitive and they violated a trust between them. And as a result, they're leaving the church. And they're ticked off at the idiot pastor and the idiot couple. And then they go off and the result is division and brokenness and resentment and hurt. All these things... Now, if it's not that situation, it's a situation over our kids. If it's not that, it's because somebody posted something on Facebook that we didn't like. Or if it's not that, well, the list goes on and on and on. And here's what I know. When division is a result of our arguments, when, when we see bitterness developing, when we see discord happen, when we see division happening within our families or within our church, we know that that's not God. We know that God's not in that. It's actually polar opposite of what God wants. Now, as we go to the Word of God, James is on a roll. I, the more I'm studying the book of James, the more I'm realizing that James is trying to correct that which is wrong in the local church. Now, remember the mission of James. James says it's all about doing. Faith does. Faith does. And there's all these things that faith does that we have right here on the front of our stage. This is what our series has all been about. But if, if faith will not do that, if we are sidetracked by showing favoritism, faith will not act in the proper way if we are not working hard for God. Faith is not going to work properly if we're not taming the tongue or if we're not operating by God's wisdom versus man wisdom, as, as, as Elder Josh talked about last week. And today he's saying, if there's conflicts that are unresolved within the church, then faith is not going to be, be able to do what it needs to do. See, God wants us on mission with him. He wants us to feed the hungry. He wants us to help the widows and the orphans in their distress. He wants us to be working for him to be the hands and feet of Christ. He wants us to do what Philippians 1.27 says, that we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel of God. 
And that's what he desires for the church. But there's this constant tension because the church is constantly going the way of the flesh and doing things in our own way, in our own power. And God, and that's what James is trying to address. And so as we look at the word of God today, let's pray that God would reveal even in our own hearts any seed of division that might be there. Lord Jesus, as we look at your holy word, we realize that you give your holy word as a way to instruct us. I pray, Father, that as we listen to your word, I pray that your spirit would work in us. Lord, help us to have the same mindset and heart as Jesus when he prayed in John 17 that we would be one so that the world would know. Lord, we fear that there is those from the outside that look inside the church and they see division and they say, I don't want to be a part of that. But Lord, I pray that they would look within our church, within our families, within churches, and they would see a unity of spirit and that we are one in the gospel. And I pray that you would do a special work in the body of Christ. And I pray that in Christ's name, amen. So far in our series, we know that James wants us to be encouragers. He wants us to go out of our ways to encourage others. But today, I think encouragement needs to be coupled. That's one side of the coin. It has to be coupled with unity. There has to be a unity of heart. And so he's going to diagnose the problem that existed within his church. And so he starts off, if, if you open your Bibles to James chapter 4, he starts off with the source of conflicts that happen within a church. He says this, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your des you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now it's interesting, James uses what we often use as parents. We ask questions, don't we? Tommy, did you do this? Hmm? We give kind of that look, and it's to invoke something in their minds and hearts. Did I really, did, was I a part of that? Last week, Josh said he brought out the question that James asked, who is wise and understanding? Now this week he says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? So he wants us to evaluate that as a church. Immediately, though, James gives a couple observations that he makes as the source of quarrels and conflicts. Number one source is the passions that are at war within you. Now, I want you to think about that. The passions that are at war within you. The word passion in the original language is where we get our English word hedonism, meaning worldly desires, worldly passions that consume our heart. Now, we don't have to look too far. God doesn't keep worldly passions as ambiguous, or he doesn't keep us guessing on it. We can look in Scripture and see lists all over the place. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, for example, chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3, he says this. Paul says this. Paul, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiveness, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All kinds of things in that list. See, what he's showing is what happens in our flesh. Now, if you are lost, if you haven't given your life to Christ, I just want you to know all of that is still in there. 
you still have a very wicked heart. When you come to Christ, the old man is crucified. You still have fleshly tendencies. So believe me, we can tap into all these eternal, internal things that cause external problems. Every one of us is capable of loving money too much. Every one of us is capable of being boastful or being proud or being abusive or being ungrateful or being unholy or being without love or being unforgiving. All of us are capable, and he's saying, this is the source. You want to know where it comes from? It comes from within the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we are divisive with one another, it's coming from this place. Know the source. But then he says this. He says, you are murderers, and you covet. Now, that's pretty harsh. Did murder actually take place in the church? I don't know. I don't. I, I guess not. I don't, I don't know for certain. But what we do know in 1 John is that if we hate our brother, we're a murderer. If we hate our brother, we are a murderer. Because hate is what leads to murder. And so here's the progression of thought that James is getting here. It's kind of a domino effect. He says a person of the church covets. We covet somebody else, what they have, their position in life their relationships, their roles, their responsibility. And they covet that. And when they don't get it themselves, they become angry. They become bitter. They become resentful. And all of a sudden, that kind of comes out in their relationships with those that are around them, and they start to spew out. Now, the irony here is that the true source of the problem is coveting, but it's masked. It's masked. All we see is two people arguing. But what James does is he rips open the heart and he allows us to peer into a window and says, this is where it's coming from. My friends, there's times that I've had an argument with my spouse. There's times that I've had arguments with people around me. There's times I've had arguments with coworkers. And when I evaluate my heart, I often see some ugly stuff in Steve. This is where it comes from right there. Now, understand what he is trying to get at. What James is really trying to address is this issue of unbelief. All of that is because we allow ourselves to have unbelief, which in a sense puts us on the opposite side of the fence with God. We do polar opposite of what God intends. Instead of us loving our brother, instead of us having unity, instead of us doing all those things, we fight and we quarrel. So my question is, why does unbelief reside in the church? Why does unbelief happen? Well, there are three biblical reasons. This is kind of a sidebar, but I think it's important that we understand that. There's three biblical reasons why we have unbelief. Here's the number one reason. There's a problem of assumed Christianity. Now, some of you say, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, you know that the mission of the church is to reach people that don't know Christ. The goal is that they would come to church, they would hear the truth, that they would fall under conviction, and that they would give their life to Christ. We want that to be in the church. But sometimes lost people will come into the church and they will assume Christianity. And because they come into church, they sit in the same pew as everyone else, it's assumed that they are a believer. But the problem is there's been no inner transformation of the heart. And remember, what's in there if there's been no inner transformation? Just a bunch of yuck. There's a lot of yuck that's deep down within. 
And so when they integrate within relationships, it starts to spew out. The Apostle Paul dealt with this in 2 Corinthians. Listen to what he says. He says, I'm afraid when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you might not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be, note, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sins, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Now notice that this is a problem that caused deep fear for Paul because he saw that there were those that had not been redeemed and they had not come to a place of, of, of turning and repenting of their sin. And notice what the fruit was. Quarrels, conflicts among them. Here's the second reason why unbelief resides. We have a problem of weak Christians. Christians that are brand new. Now, we want brand new Christians. We want people to come to faith in Christ, but what we don't want is for people to stay in that condition. Our job as leadership is to make sure that person is discipled. But when there's been no change, they look much like the world. This is what Paul said in Corinthians. He said this, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it yet. Indeed, you are still not ready, for since there is, get this, jealousy, quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Do you see the common denominator? It's when we tap into all this stuff, and this is the immature, are still have that flesh that they have to contend with in life. And so this is what God's addressing here. Now, I want you to know God wants lost people and he wants new believers in the church, but he doesn't want them to stay in a perpetual state of lostness or in immaturity. He wants us to move on. Here's the third reason why unbelief resides in the church. There's a problem of childish Christians. Now, childish Christians are people that are believers. They've been believers for a long time, but they revert back. They revert back to childish behaviors. The author of Hebrews was addressing this situation when he said, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. The fact is, a person that thinks like a child will do what? Act like a child. Absolutely. And so what he is saying here is that we, either, we need to move on to maturity as believers. Now, over the years, I have seen some horrendous things by grown adults. Something happened. There's an offense. Somebody who's been a lifetime friend all of a sudden crosses me, does something that I don't like, and I just avoid them. I just say, you know what? I'm going to have nothing to do with you. Even if that person tries to call, tries to get together with that person, they turn their back and they say, I'm not talking to you. I am mad at you. I am bitter at you. I want you to know that you are doing the things of the world and you are on the polar opposite side of what God wants in your life. When you have that attitude, you are sinning and you are arrogant. You are, you are puffed up and you are refusing to deal with something in your heart. And God says, uh-uh. 
I don't want that. That cannot be. Think about it. Jesus said this. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And if we are told to pray for our enemies, what should that mean for those that are brothers and sisters that are in Christ? We have no excuse for our behavior. Now, this is the source of the conflict. This is why unbelief exists in the church. So now James moves on, and he talks about the consequences of the conflicts. Take a look at verse 2. He's going to say the consequence, number one, is unanswered prayer. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask but do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Now, my friends, normally prayer is a really good route to go. Prayer is a great route to go, but God sees through the spiritual ease of our behavior. He sees when we are masking things through prayer just to look spiritual. And God will never sanction our lives and answer prayers when we are living a life totally contrary to what God wants of us. And so he says, I'm not going to answer that. He says, James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own pleasures. The word spend means to squander. It literally means to squander. In other words, we want God's approval on our actions so that we can squander, in a sense, God's grace on our own evil and selfish behavior. Be assured, God has nothing to do with this. So this is the first consequence, unanswered prayer. The second consequence, I think that's harsh. But the second consequence, it's even, well, you judge for yourself. He says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? In other words, strife with God is hatred towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The second consequence is we become an enemy of God. Now, if you've, stud if you've followed along in the book of James, you know that James has some pet phrases. He loves to say, my brethren, my brethren, my brethren, my brethren. But guess what? He doesn't say my brethren here. What does he say? You adulterous people. Now, James seems like he would be that, that nice pastor that would come alongside of you, that would really be an encouragement. But out of love, he says what is necessary. And what is he trying to do? He is trying to get the body, to, a body of Christ to see their sin as God sees it. Do you realize that that's our problem sometimes? We don't see our sin as God sees it. We see it through our rose-colored glasses, and we give ourselves a pass or an excuse. And he says, no, no, no. I want you to see it for what it is. And James is clearly laying out there's an affair with the world that is going on here. Now, he spells it out by saying they were cozying themselves up with the world in their friendship with the world. In other words, this strong emotional attachment with the world. Now, if you think about this, all of us are susceptible to this because we're surrounded by the world. We're in it 24-7. And it's very easy for the culture of this life, the world system, to come in on us. And in this world system, guess what? There's no forgiveness. In this, in this world system, there's no overlooking of offenses. In this world system, rather, there's revenge. 
There is distrust. There is looking at every single person with a sense of distrust and suspicion. That's our world system. I can't tell you how many times that, I've, that people have come into the church and that's been their heart. And I understand some people have really been burned by the church. But God doesn't give us a pass that we can just hold on to that. In fact, what he does is he says, you are aligning yourself with the world with worldly wisdom, not with following God's ways, as we talked about last week. And by doing so, the verdict is you're acting as an enemy of God. That's a hard thing. In fact, unanswered prayer, being an enemy of God is a harsh consequence and it's very severe, and it really puts us on the wrong side of the fence with God. Now, here's what we do. We kind of look at it from our angle, and we say, you know what, I just can't be friends with everybody. So what if I don't like that person? I'll just avoid them. I'll walk down a different hallway. Or if I see them in the hallway, I'll just ignore them. Act like I didn't see them. I'll just do that. That's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. God tells us he's not giving us a pass. In fact, what God sees within us is selfish, it's worldly, and it's a love affair. Now, this should cause each and every one of us, it certainly has for me this week, to ask this question. Is there any unresolved issue that I have with a brother or sister in Christ? Have I at least done my part to attempt to bring reconciliation? If I have, then the ball's in their court. But have I at least attempted to reconcile with them? Now, I want you to know that God doesn't want us to stay there. Take a look at verse 5. He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says that God, He, yearns jealousy for the Spirit that He made to dwell in us? I'll talk about the Spirit in a minute. But He gives more grace, therefore he's, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know what He's saying here? The spirit that he's talking about is not the Holy Spirit, but it's our human spirit. And here's what we learn. God desires deeply with a holy jealousy. I never thought of God having a holy jealousy, but there's a holy jealousy that God has, and I would liken it to a jealousy that I have for my wife and my wife would have for me that we would be exclusive. And if there's any threat on that, watch out, baby, because you're going to see some holy jealousy coming your way because it shouldn't be that way. And so there's this holy jealousy that God has for his children. And he yearns for the spirit he made to dwell in us that we would be in communion with him, that there would be no obstacle, no barrier, no sin, that would be in the way of God and of, for, for you for you and God and God and us. So that's what he desires. But we have to get rid of the pride. We have to be willing to humbly submit. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But at this point, what we simply need to ask is, is there something between God and yourself? Is there any barrier? Because if there is a barrier, then please know that what we are about to say in the book of James is golden for us. Because God lays out what we need to do in the solution. He doesn't leave us guessing. He spells it out emphatically. He says this in verses 7 through 10. The solution to conflict is humble submission. Look what he says. Submit, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do you realize in the original language there's 10 imperative commands that are given in here? Now in Greek, that's basically a tool to let people know, thus saith the Lord. This is heavy on God's heart. And so he speaks in imperative commands that this is what must happen in our life in order for there to be a restored relationship with God. Now, out of these commands, there's three categories or three things we must do. Number one, we must commit. We must commit ourselves to submitting to God. He says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Can't be that hard? Sure. Okay, God, I submit to you. Not that easy. Not that easy. The word submit is a military command that means to be subordinated under. This is an issue of authority in our life. Here's God's design. God's on the throne. We are the servants. He is over us. We are under him. God's on the throne. That's the design. The problem is we have and will have in the future this enemy who has spoken into the ears of people ever since Adam and Eve. You want to be your own God. You want to call the shots. You need to be the person that is in control. And when we listen to that voice, what we do is we invert the authority structure and we become the ones on the throne and God becomes our servant, which God will not entertain. So what he is saying here is that we have to submit ourselves. James is saying that we have to restore our relationship with God by making a very clear defined relationship. God, you are God. If you say it, I will do it. If you tell me that living with my spouse or, or living with my girlfriend is wrong, I will listen to you. If you tell me that I should worship by singing, I will listen to you. If you tell me that I am to reconcile with my brother or sister in Christ, I will listen to you. If you tell me that you want me to be a man or woman of prayer, I will listen to you. If you tell me that you want me to allow the word of God to soak in my heart, I will listen to you. Guess what? Every one of those things God tells us to do. We submit to his authority. We commit. Number two, there's cleansing. There's cleansing. Notice what he says. He says, we draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Now, for the Jewish person reading this or listening to this, they knew immediately that he was taught, there was kind of this picture of the Levitical priest that had to take a ceremonial bath. He had to cleanse himself. He had to do animal sacrifices in order for him to approach and draw near to God. Now, James clarifies there's two things that he wants in order for us to draw near to God. Number one, he said, cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. So what's he talking about? Our hands are what sin. 
We take our hands, it's, our, it's what's on our hands that write disparaging messages on, in email. It's our hands that hold our cell phone, that look at things that we shouldn't look at. Or it, it texts things that we should, should not text. Or it posts things that we should not post. It's our hands that drive the vehicle to places that we should not go. And what he is saying is get rid of the things that your hands are doing. Purify it. It comes down to brass tacks that there has to be actions and decisions. See, we could talk about dieting all day long, but unless I start to diet, I am not going to diet. I could talk about exercise all day long, but unless I actually make a plan of action to actually exercise, it's not going to happen. And what he is saying here is you can talk about wanting to repent. You can talk about it all day, but there has to be action. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And then he says, purify your heart, you double-minded. Why the heart? Because this is the internal stuff. My friends, this is where we make monsters out of people that we don't agree with or don't like. This is where we allow lust to fester and dwell. This is where we conspire how to work things to our advantage. This is where we become double-minded. And it pays the reason that God says you got to confess these things. Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your heart. So we got to commit. We have to have cleansing. But then we have to have contrition. What's contrition? It's a sense of brokenness. After David sinned with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51, and he said this, The sacrifice of God are a broken, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not be despised. See, brokenness is the key to contrition. And what he says in this passage is three things. He says, number one, I want you to be sorry for your sin. He says, be wretched and mournful. The word wretched means to grieve. Once again, this is an inner sorrow that has an outward manifestation of tears that we are sorry for what we have done. And here's my fear. Focus here. Here's my fear. My fear is that we have for so long entertained things in our life that are not wrong that we have just become accustomed to them being there and our hearts have become callous. And what we need is God to break us. He says... Be sorry for your sin. Be wretched and mournful. Second, we need to, we actually need to turn from our sin. It's, it's in the idea of mourning still. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. There's a turning point in our life where we say, enough's enough. And finally, he says, let there be humility. Let there be humility. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The idea of exalting carries the idea of restoration. Don't you love restoration? Don't you love it when there is a brother or sister in Christ that you are restored with? Years ago, I had a friend. We were deep in our friendship. And for, for a period of about nine months, I sensed a greater distance that we were. I didn't know what it was. So finally, I got together with him. I took the initiative. We walked around the park, and man, he was furious at me. I said, brother, why didn't you tell me these things? Let's walk through this. And when we diagnosed it, it was simply a little misunderstanding. It wasn't a sinful issue. It was a misunderstanding. But all of that time, he allowed that to fester within his heart. Please note that none of these steps 
that, uh, that are given here really involve other people. See, it's interesting. James starts off the message by saying, here's your problem with people. And he ends the message by saying, here's your problem with God. What's the message he's saying? He's saying, their two are connected. If we don't have this thing right, this is never going to be right. And so we got to make sure that we're dealing with God first, that we are under his authority, that we are asking for his, we are confessing our sins, and that we are coming and asking for cleansing, and that we are coming contrite, broken before him. As we sing this last song, I want to challenge us to listen to what the Spirit of God says. Guys, I don't bring up the content. Guy, I want you to know this is a heavy burden because this is a heavy passage, and I have no idea what's going on in your life. There might be people that say, well, I, do you know something I don't know? I mean, do you know? I don't read your, I don't read your Facebook. I don't, I don't, I don't spend hardly, I, don't, I look at it about once every two months. But I don't know what's going on in you. But the Spirit of God does. And so if there's something where God is saying, okay, let's finally deal with this. And he is saying that right here, right now. Guess what? Deal with it. The last song is Come to the Altar. And it's this idea that we come before God as we are. This altar is always open. You can come here and pray. You can stay there and kneel. You can stand up. You can pray with somebody beside you. But whatever it is that the Spirit of God is doing in your heart, would you please respond in obedience to what God says?